Hi there, welcome to the history of violence. ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi's death, coming at a time when an ISIS resurgence looked possible, is being celebrated this week, and not without good cause. It's about the sixth time he's been reported dead, but it appears that this time it is for real. This is not someone whose death should be mourned, and it's clearly of huge historical importance. His assassination, involving the death of three innocent children and with descriptions of him being chased down by dogs, may serve to inflame tensions in the region. But it will also provide a sense of justice to many of those victimised by ISIS. But what does the evidence say about the effects of targeting terrorist leaders? Does it actually damage the group in the long run? Are there any potential negative side effects? Does it have similar effects across different types of groups? And what can the history tell us about the possible effects of this death on the future of ISIS? I'll be discussing a wide range of academic sources for this episode, some of which were gathered in a really useful Twitter thread last week by Thomas Seidoff, an associate professor at the American University. Probably the academic who's doing the most comprehensive and up-to-date work on this is Jenna Jordan, who's an associate professor at Georgia Tech. She has a new book out and has done a TED Talk, which provides a pretty good summary of her research, so check that out for more information. Uh, during this podcast, I will use the terms leadership targeting and leadership decapitation interchangeably, but the, that basically means the assassination or arrest of a senior member of a clandestine organisation. Uh, so anyway, let's start the show. So, the evidence on the effects of leadership decapitation is pretty mixed. There are a lot of subtle differences depending on the size, organisational structure and ideology of the group in question. In social science, nothing can ever be simple. But the headline news is this. Violent non-state organisations are pretty resilient to the death of their leaders. There's a fair amount of fancy statistical evidence for this, with Jenna Jordan finding that groups that have their leaders successfully targeted are actually slightly more likely to survive in the long run, even if there is a short-run disruption to their activities. It's fairly easy to come up with some examples to show this. The death of Osama bin Laden in 2011 was a pretty big moment, but Al-Qaeda remain a group with global reach. Indeed, they've even expanded in the time since his death, gaining uh, affiliates in Asia and Africa. So for all the excitement over the death of bin Laden, it hasn't done anything to solve the underlying conflict or to eliminate Al-Qaeda. Bacon and Arnold do argue that the split between Al-Qaeda and ISIS can be traced back to the death of bin Laden. In military strategy, it's usually a good thing to cause splits in your enemy's alliance, so from a Western point of view, you could see this as a success. However, both Al-Qaeda and ISIS managed to survive and flourish during this period, and you certainly can't say that the Middle East is safer or more stable now than it was in 2011. Studies on the effects of fragmentation in a conflict tend to show that there are a host of negative effects associated with splits and intra-group conflict. Evidence from the Mexican drug war and the Middle East tends to show that competition between different armed groups increases the direct violence between them and also leads to higher rates of civilian casualties. A loss of effective leadership in the immediate aftermath of a successful decapitation can also increase civilian targeting in war crimes, as the ability of the leadership to exert control over their most extreme and reckless members is reduced. So, a divided opponent is a good thing from a strictly military point of view, but the unintended side effects of this can be damaging and counterproductive. 
Even if the successful elimination of a leader seems to help weaken one group, there is no guarantee that a successor can't emerge to fill their place. Abu Musab al-Zakwari, the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq, was killed by US forces in 2006, but this had no effect on the level of violence in Iraq. Violence continued, and the various Sunni terrorist organisations connected to al-Qaeda in Iraq emerged into what became ISIS. In the context of a pervasive region-wide religious conflict, the death of a single leader is unlikely to have a significant effect on the overall level of violence or on the outcome of the war. However, it should be noted that some scholars, including Patrick Johnson, have found evidence that targeting militant leaders can contribute to lower violence and to war termination. Conflict is complicated, so perhaps it's better to talk about when leadership decapitation can work rather than trying to find a one-size-fits-all answer. One way of thinking about this is that it all depends on how important that leader is to the group. If an organisation is based around a single strong leader who has both ideological and organisational importance, then the loss of that leader should be more damaging. For example, the loss of a charismatic figure could cause a group to lose focus and direction, while also falling victim to internal decay. A good example of this would be Shoko Ashara, the spiritual and practical leader of Um Shinriko, a Japanese doomsday cult which released sarin gas into the Tokyo subway system. The group revered him as something more than a leader, as almost a kind of deity. The loss of a leader like this would, the thinking goes, make the continuation of a group like this untenable. Imagine a Manson family with no Charles Manson. However, even in the case of an extremely personalistic leadership like that we saw in Um Shinriku, the group did not disappear entirely after the arrest of their leader. Although almost the entire leadership cadre of Um Shinriku was arrested, with several being executed, the group continues to recruit new members and is arguably seeing something of a renaissance. In the immediate aftermath of the attacks, the group renounced violence, but continued spreading their ideology and recruiting members. On New Year's Day 2019, a sympathiser rammed his car into pedestrians in retaliation for the execution of some of the former leaders, indicating the potential for a return to violence. Maybe they aren't the best case study, though. Looking at larger groups, Osama bin Laden was also a figure of huge symbolic and religious importance, but Al-Qaeda survived his death. Likewise, Abdullah Ocalan was both an operational and intellectual leader of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, but his lifetime imprisonment by the Turkish government has not helped to end his organisation or the wider conflict between the Kurds and Turkey. So, even when we see the successful elimination of an important, charismatic leader, there is no clear guarantee that it will significantly weaken the individual organisation or the wider movement in the long run. Furthermore, there is no guarantee that a group will be headed by a charismatic leader who is of central importance to the running of the group. Some organisations have more diffuse leadership structures, automatically making them more resilient to leadership targeting. This is the sort of thing that Jenna Jordan focuses on in her work, looking at organisational capabilities rather than the position and qualities of the individual leaders in question. This makes a lot of sense. While the media likes to focus on high-profile leaders, terrorist groups are organisations, not one-man bands. This is especially true of large groups, and doubly true of transnational groups which form webs of affiliates and allies, such as Al-Qaeda. Jordan finds that smaller, newer, weaker groups are the most vulnerable to leadership decapitation, while larger and more established groups are pretty much immune. This intuitively makes quite a lot of sense. Much like a business, clandestine political organisations gain experience over time, allowing them to institute resilience procedures and plan ahead for leadership changes. 
as with a business, having more staff allows for a deeper talent pool, which means that people can step up and take over if they face disruption. If a small family-run restaurant loses its manager and its head chef, it will face serious challenges and may even have to fold. On the other hand, McDonald's could easily lose a handful of senior managers and still survive. This logic applies to violent political actors as well. Jordan looks at organisational capacity along two lines, bureaucracy and communal support. Bureaucracy is something we usually associate with governments, but it isn't limited to them. It also applies to large businesses, as discussed above, and to pretty much any other type of large organisation. Max Weber talked about a tendency for even loose social movements to become institutionalised and bureaucratised, so that even some kind of radical, chaotic, anti-state protest movement can potentially develop into a professional organisation with a clear hierarchy, succession plans and corporate strategies. Think about how Greenpeace went from being a happy protest movement to one of the biggest charities in the world. Every large group develops some kind of bureaucracy, and terrorist groups are no different. However, the level of bureaucratisation varies. Militant groups which actually control territory will generally have the highest level of organisational capacity, given that they essentially function as proto-states. Groups like ISIS or the FARC in Colombia manage to raise taxes, educate children, build infrastructure and pay salaries to their members. Even groups that don't have that level of control over territory do generally try to institute more complex systems of decision-making and organisational control. For example, paramilitary groups in Northern Ireland adapted military hierarchy to allow for efficient command of disparate units while protecting against infiltration, despite not exerting the kind of territorial control that we see in full-blown civil wars. Many terrorist groups, especially those too small to engage in successful bureaucratisation, deliberately adopt a loose, horizontal organisational structure. While this might seem like the opposite of a hierarchical, institutionalised, bureaucratised system, it can also protect against successful decapitation, as well as against infiltration. This form of organisation is especially prevalent among groups operating against extremely capable and powerful states, for example those working within the United States or Europe. While it first emerged among leftist, anarchist-inspired groups such as the Animal Liberation Front, it was repopularised by the white supremacist uh, Louis Beam. Beam argued that hierarchical organisations were vulnerable to having the chain of command either disclosed or disrupted by the government. Therefore, he advocated a form of leaderless resistance in which loose-knit groups plan and carry out attacks semi-independently, but with a common ideological goal. This explains why, despite the high prevalence of white supremacist violence in the US, there is no longer a single identifiable group carrying out these attacks. The ideology remains strong, but there is no overarching organisation. The same applies to most Islamic terror attacks in the West. While they may be inspired by ISIS or Al-Qaeda, they are carried out by smaller, more nimble, less easily disrupted cells. Many scholars, including, including Ganor and Azani, have found that the most resilient and successful groups are so-called hybrid organisations, those which combine both of these organisational strategies. So, a group can be bureaucratic and professionalised at the top, with competent long-term planning, institutionalised decision-making and solid succession plans. At the lower level, they are decentralised, adaptable and difficult to infiltrate or disrupt. So, certain organisational structures make leadership targeting a much less effective strategy. Jordan also flags up the level of communal support as an important factor. 
At the most basic level, groups with lots of support will be stronger, richer, larger, and therefore more able to withstand disruption. They can more easily replace lost leaders and can rely on the wider community to protect them. Secondly, targeting the leaders of popular groups runs the risk of creating martyrs, potentially causing a spike in membership and violent backlashes. This risk is increased if civilians are killed alongside the leaders, which happens frequently with drone strikes. This means that targeting groups with lots of support is harder, it's less effective, and it's potentially quite dangerous in the long run. The need to think about the wider community which groups emerge from is really important. Even if leadership targeting does weaken a particular organisation, that doesn't mean it will weaken the wider movement. ISIS and Al-Qaeda come out of a wider Islamic fundamentalist movement, which has its roots in the deep-seated religious and geopolitical divisions which run across the Middle East and North Africa. Weakening them will not eliminate the movement or the problems associated with it. The same is true in Palestine, where weakening or destroying Hamas will do little to end the conflict between Palestine and Israel. Shia militias will continue to exist even if Hezbollah are weakened. The capture of Abdullah Ocalan did nothing to eliminate the Kurdistan Workers' Party, but even if it did, that wouldn't solve the geopolitical issues related to the lack of a Kurdish state. Destroying the Ku Klux Klan did nothing to end white supremacy in America. Of course, it's somewhat lazy to simply point out that the root causes are important. Of course they are. And there is clearly a need to counter individual terrorist groups, if only to prevent them from organising large-scale attacks. But we should be realistic about what the death of a single leader can actually achieve. So this brings us back to what the death of Abdu Bakr al-Baghdadi might actually mean for the future of the Islamic State. ISIS were territorially already pretty much defeated, although their organisational structure did and, as far as we know, currently does remain intact. ISIS existed before it gained all the territory which allowed it to become a caliphate, and has shown itself quite capable of adapting. The US withdrawal from northern Syria and the conflict between Turkey and the Kurdish forces in the area meant that ISIS was poised to make a potential comeback in the region. That means that this attack is pretty well-timed, acting to potentially disrupt the organisation at the most pivotal possible moment. Nevertheless, we should not view this as a watershed moment in the wider conflict. ISIS still have popular support in parts of Syria and Iraq, and have made alliances with groups across the Middle East and Africa. They had a highly developed, sophisticated and resilient organisational structure and have shown the ability to adapt their goals and methods. The loss of territorial control meant that they were already in the process of reverting from being a proto-state to a more diffuse, maybe Al-Qaeda-style terror network, meaning that the death of their leader in Syria may not be as disruptive to their activities as some would hope. Finally, groups like Jabat al-Nusra stand ready to fill any potential vacuum. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening, and uh, thank you to all the scholars whose work I was discussing today. Um, I'll put some links in the bio if you want to check out any of their work. I would recommend you do so. It's really, really interesting. And yeah, thanks for listening. Please like, share, subscribe, and get in touch if you have any comments. Cheers. Mm-hmm.